And so uh, the, uh, the title of today's Peak Collaborative is Developing Future Faculty to Ensure a, few, uh, a Favorable Future for, uh, for Pete. Um, and uh, I was tasked with uh, providing some opening comments, um, kind of framing doctoral education in the United States and then transitioning into um, our, uh, our, our kind of overview of the, of the specific session today and the, form, the format we chose and, and why we chose that. Uh, my, my comments are going to be relatively brief, less than five minutes. Doctoral education is a complicated, multifaceted, multi-tiered enterprise, um, and, and so I won't be able to do justice uh, to, to covering all of it. Um, but I've got about a page of bullet points that, that I wanted to, uh, to offer in terms of setting the stage a little bit for our conversation. Um, and so broadly, um, the purpose of doctoral education relates to preparation for disciplinary stewardship. Uh, faculty members can be considered stewards of their respective disciplines as they advance um, their fields through research and preparation of future in-service practitioners and, of course, uh, relative to physical education. That's the teacher education function of our role, uh, where we're working to educate the next generation of physical educators. Um, faculty roles are generally uh, constructed around the three areas of teaching, research, and service, but expectations related to those three roles vary across different institutions. Um, some of that linked uh, to um, uh, the focus of the institution, whether, whether it's um, a, you know, a large uh, research institution, um, a more comprehensive institution where there's uh, a sought balance between um, a, a teaching and research, or more of a, a teaching-focused institution. Uh, Pete doctoral education uh, also varies widely within the U.S. With no national guidelines or standards, uh, curricula are related more to local imperatives and the perspectives and values of doctoral uh, faculty members. Um, at some doctoral institutions, for example, there's a strong emphasis on learning how to conduct and publish research, uh, whereas others provide a more balanced perspective that includes educating more broadly for future faculty roles across um, those three facets of teaching, uh, research, and service. Um, concerns have been raised of, uh, around this um, apparent lack of consensus uh, related to what should um, be enclosed within doctoral education curricula. Um, uh, and uh, uh, there have been some conversations that have played out in the literature to that effect. Um, what, looking at the at the research um, that we have relative to doctoral education now, just a couple of uh, kind of important points or pullout points. Uh, faculty members are, are considered central to the doctoral education process. Um, they hold an imbalance of power that needs to be actively monitored, discussed, and interrogated uh, for clear communication. Um, in many ways, uh, faculty mentors uh, are gatekeepers to their students' finishing programs, um, and that can uh, create some uncomfortable and difficult dynamics for students sometimes. And so it's kind of on the faculty member to acknowledge uh, that imbalance of power and find ways to communicate through it appropriately. Uh, good doctoral mentors can help students jumpstart their careers and position them for success in academia, uh, but not all doctoral students um, have and, and communicate positive experiences. And this emphasizes the importance of finding um, a faculty member that suits one's preference and style, that match between mentee and mentor. Similar to pre-service teachers, doctoral students report feeling underprepared for the socio-political side of their work uh, once they join faculty. Um, this emphasizes the importance of having honest and open conversations about the, the realities of faculty life and academic life. Um, and strategies for managing different elements of one, one's personal and professional life uh, should be taught and modeled, meaning that, that we as faculty mentors uh, have a responsibility to, to seek, um, I don't like the term balance, maybe more like role management and how we construct our personal and professional lives and then model that for them um, uh, in appropriate ways. Uh, the landscape of doctoral education in the U.S. is a bit uncertain at the moment, as undergraduate program closures at once prominent doctoral institutions have raised questions about the long-term viability of doctoral programming in those places. Uh, it should be added, however, that as some doctoral programs have closed, um, some new programs have opened with new faculty members assuming roles as doctoral educators. Um, finally, uh, in kind of transitioning into our purpose today, the effectiveness of any educational intervention is best founded in the years following the said intervention. In the case of doctoral education and the transition into faculty roles and the assumption of the roles and responsibilities of a teacher educator. 
our goal in putting together today's panel was to invite faculty members uh, who are at the beginning of their careers to speak about um, their preparation for faculty for, for, the, for the faculty roles of teaching, research, and service. We'll ask them to both acknowledge some of the strengths of their doctoral programs in relation to this preparation and consider areas in which they felt underprepared uh, to make that transition. By listening to their experiences, um, excuse me, by listening to the experiences of these emerging scholars and others on the meeting of, of the Peak Collaborative today, we can better interrogate and seek to improve doctoral education amongst our institutions. Um, so uh, with, the, with that framing, I think I'll turn it over to Jen, um, who's going to kind of set up the, um, the, the format for the panel. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, so um, the way this will work today, we have a panel of seven um, seven faculty um, who have finished their doctoral programs in the last five years. Um, we wanted to get a, a, as recent um, perspective as possible. So that's why they were, they were invited. And we also tried to be intentional in trying to get um, folks who are teaching at different types of institutions and who also attended different types of PhD programs. Um, so we're trying to get as diverse of a perspective as possible here. Um, the way this will work, we've got three major blocks of questions. Um, one block uh, is around high quality teaching. The second is around research and scholarship. And the third is around service. Um, and so <clears throat> Kevin, Chad, and I will lead those questions. Um, our panelists will be invited to respond and we'll have a conversation. And then um, if time allows, we'll open it up to all the other Peak Collaborative participants here today to share your perspectives and thoughts. Um, and also, as always, please um, contribute your ideas in the chat. So um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our <clears throat> panelists today. Uh, we have Dr. Corey Boyd, Assistant Professor at Springfield College. Dr. Jamie Brunson, Brunston, sorry, Assistant Professor of Peak at University of Memphis. Dr. Xiao Ping, also known as Ping Fan, Assistant Professor at SUNY Cortland. Dr. Jenna Fisher, Assistant Professor at Westchester University. Dr. Christopher Kinder, Postdoc Research Associate in the Neurocognitive Health Behavior Lab at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Toy, sorry, Toy, Tori Shiver, Assistant Professor, University of New Mexico, and Mason Sir, Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of South Carolina. So let's just welcome them and uh, thank you so much for volunteering your time and be willing to share your ideas with us ahead of time. We're really excited to hear your perspectives today. So with that said, I will start our questions. Um, the first section is around high quality teaching. And our first question is, what types of teaching preparation experiences did you have in your doctoral program? And to what extent did those experiences prepare you to teach your current course load? So open it up, any of our seven panelists. Um, feel free to unmute and share your thoughts. I guess I'll start. Um, are we raising hands or is that? No, okay. I guess I'll lower it. Um, well, hi everybody, this is Jenna Fisher. I'm teaching um, right now at the uh, Westchester University in Pennsylvania, which actually is a sister school to the school that I went to, so that's, people are not a big fan. Um, but I went to University of South Carolina and the um, benefit in doing that was not only that it was a pedagogy program, so it had pedagogy focus, um, but they involved us in a lot of teaching opportunities. So we, as doc students, were required to teach several courses each semester. Um, and in doing so, it gave us the experience of teaching and then balancing teaching and research and also taking classes. Um, so that was a nice experience. But in addition to that, what was a nice, um, a nice piece to that was that they involved us in the methods classes and then the student teaching experiences as well. So um, we were shadowing the instructor instructor of record um, as GAs. And so we were out in the field with the students and using rubrics on them and doing the feedback and doing, you know, all of pretty much most of the work. Um, but we, it was a really awesome experience in terms of like handling um, students and helping them grow in their different, you know, the undergrads grow in their teaching. So 
um, that was one of the, the coolest experiences um, in, in addition to student teaching supervision, um, which was an amazing experience as a doctoral student. Uh, I have similar experiences uh, exist. And so I was, uh, I did my PhD uh, at University of Northern Colorado and it was uh, great experiences there. So I taught uh, multiple courses, including low level pit uh, courses and high level courses like the methods course, elementary and secondary PE methods courses. So that's super helpful because uh, currently I'm teaching elementary PE methods class, I mean, at SUNY Colland. So that experience really helped me a lot. And also we, I mean, I also um, PhD students at Uni uh, University of Northern Colorado, we also teach uh, activity classes. For example, uh, self-defense, uh, dance, uh, uh, stress management. So we, we taught like a bunch, we teach like a bunch of uh, courses activity and uh, classes in PIT program as well. And also we uh, have experiences uh, working with our uh, men uh, advisor or other uh, faculty as a uh, uh, supervised teach graduate uh, class classes. So we have experiences of teaching graduate classes as well. So that's, uh, I mean, it's nice to have both experiences, undergraduate and graduate. Uh, so, like no. one else, I think uh, very similar. I think for me, uh, something that was I've, a bit unique that stood out for me was being able to uh, kind of be an apprentice for a semester with a methods course and the professor allowing you to teach the course, but designing and doing all the management for you up front. So just giving you the experience of just teaching and not developing content for me was very helpful and seeing how you structure courses um, and seeing how they structure the courses. So when it was your turn to teach a methods or excuse me, an activity course, you could take some of those bits and pieces from your faculty advisor and apply it to your activity classes, but then also you're reinforcing some of the work. So like um, everyone else, very similar experiences, but for me, the, the apprentice model uh, really stood out for me. I can go next. Uh, I went to Georgia State University and I just graduated this summer. So throughout my coursework, I was assigned to teach various courses from introductory level throughout the higher level, such as like model-based instruction kind of thing. So the good thing about uh, the program I Thing is that I was able to experience multiple different classes because we are not sure when you are looking for a job, we're not sure whether we will go to R1, R2, or teaching school. We cannot be selective about that. So in terms of that, uh, I highly value the various experience in different co courses, even though it was just one semester. And I just taught several like topics in one class as a GA. I was still able to put those uh, experience in my CV and probably that helped me to have like the ample opportunity to experience and teaching for the majority of the PE courses uh, in our program because I found that many of the undergrad courses in physical education program in the United States are quite similar because recently I had I did some kind of research not research but I, I took my time to find if there are similarities, the courses provided in undergrad physical education major in the universities around South Carolina. And I found courses are quite similar and course hours are also similar. So if you have an experience in various teaching in courses in your program, I believe that they'll also contributable for your future teaching wherever you get your job in the United States. Thank you so much for those of you who shared so far. Um, just a thought, uh, kind of an extension question to that. Did any, is anyone experiencing a, a course load now in your position that you didn't feel prepared to teach? And what do you wish you had experienced in your PhD programs? Does that exist for anyone? <laughs> yes. Um... I would say uh, learning how to uh, streamline courses and learning how to account for workload and ebbs and flows of the semester 
So like right now for us, um, we are in an advising week. And so, you know, we kind of lull throughout the semester, midterms come along, but when the um, advising period comes on top of all your new courses switch over, the workload becomes a bit uh, a bump in the road. So I think I wish I would have learned how to um, figure out how to just streamline assignments um, and really think about what is most important for students to learn instead of trying to get it all done in one class, uh, because that definitely impacts your workload and how much you have to grade and how much feedback you have to give um, and finding really meaningful assignments. So, don't you, so you're not doing all these macro or micro assignments and grading all this stuff in very uh, time intensive and time sensitive times like advising for me. So maybe not for everyone else, but definitely for me, that's something I would have liked to have seen more in my PhD program. Thanks, Corey. I think when I speak for every everyone, maybe here, that advising time is, is difficult, probably for everyone. So thanks for that perspective. I'm going to move on to the second question for time's sake. Um, some of our students uh, enter doctoral programs without having much, if any, K-12 teaching experience. What are some ways we can support these students in gaining the experience to become an effective teacher educator? Um, if I can chime in on that, uh, again, this is Jenna from Westchester. Um, we actually had, our program was a pedagogy program, but it had a lot of uh, instructors and professors who were uh, specialists in motor development, motor behavior. So we did have a lot of research and graduate assistants coming in to the program, um, uh, you know, under that, under that uh, umbrella, I guess. And so with that, then they were still required to and prepared to be peat faculty. Um, even if that wasn't really their, you know, desire once they were finished. And so things that we found to be beneficial with them, although it's, it's, it was tough and I wouldn't say it was the best route. Um, but they did, uh, shadow a lot during, especially those methods classes. Um, so they would hang out with us and they'd, they'd watch and they'd see all the demo teaches and, um, at least be able to see kind of like what we're looking for and talk about the criteria of effective teaching. Um, and then with that, um, observing and shadowing the methods classes, they would also then sometimes be required to teach an activities class themselves. So they'd be able to then practice uh, implementing some of those, you know, things that they were learning in the classroom. Um, but then with the mentorship and the um, ability to reflect with the other grad students and or, um, you know, the faculty, but definitely that shadowing and, and, you know, really just kind of baptism by fire, throwing them in those methods classes, I think really was beneficial for them. Yeah. Uh uh, my experience is, uh, uh, so I'm originally from China and I have some experiences, teaching experience in China. So when I moved to the U.S. and I realized it's uh, my experience, the teaching experience in the U.S., it's, uh, it's super important that in the future I can sh share my experiences in like methods class, something like that. So I spent like a few semesters to observe PE class. Just, just go there and just observe and make a few notes, have uh, had conversation with the PE teachers. And that helped me a lot to understand PE, PE program, PE curriculum in the US. And uh, again, like, uh, Gina shared uh, shuttering methods course. That's, uh, that's a great way. And also I connect my research with, uh, with observation in um, PE. So, I did a, a research about uh, physical education. It's a uh, educational ethnography uh, study. So I just uh, spent two months uh, prior to COVID and I just uh, observed uh, PE regarding uh, quality PE um, components. And uh, so uh, it's kind of like observation, that's one way. And uh, I tried to connect uh, PE with my research. So that's, uh, that's my experiences. Thank you. Thank you, Ping. So I think uh, one thought that I have is, and this is not a, a new idea, but it's broadening our understanding of what experience is and looks like, um, whether that's experience mentoring students uh, informally, whether that's kind of formal experiences, whether that's pairing uh, doctoral students with uh, colleagues in schools who are looking to redevelop their programs, um, I guess finding ways for people to get experience. Um, 
one thing at the University of Alabama, which was great, was there was tons of opportunities for people to engage in after school programs or summer programs. And that's an alternative way to potentially get teaching experience, but also maybe just involved in experiences not related to teaching uh, or just working with children. Um, that's what I would say. If, if we can broaden our understanding of what experience is, I think that would be helpful. Great, thank you so much. All right, our last question. Um, in what ways can doctoral programs improve relative to preparing future faculty to deliver high quality instruction in PEAT programs? I think um, if I can carry on, um, time is obviously a serious obstacle for doctoral programs. And I feel like if faculty are aware of um, what doctoral students' interests are, what they want to explore potentially, um, what their strengths are, and, and maybe um, connecting students with particular parts of the program, um, where, whether that's assessment related, whether that's methods courses, whether that's field experiences. Um, I know uh, Dr. Deb Baxter, who's now at Kennesaw State, she was excellent at tons of things, but in particular assessment. Um, and so she served a really brilliant role in the University of Alabama's program. And that's how she found really kind of powerful experiences where she was not only able to kind of explore her interests, but field test it in really pragmatic ways, which did impact the students. So I think um, if we can find ways and I guess encourage doctoral students to pursue their passions, um, not only will it afford them that experience to practice their teaching, but it, it will hopefully prepare them for the kinds of courses that they will be teaching as faculty members. Um, if I can bounce off Jamie, um, I really think that involving the doc students in as much teaching as possible is going to make them the most effective um, because when you're trying to balance life um, and teaching and research and everything, um, it really does help to show you what the real life is like. You know, they, as when I was in my doctoral program, they would tell you, they would tell us, you know, you're practicing for real life. Like this is real life. This is your real life once you leave here. So um, sometimes I still feel like a doc student when I'm staying here late, um, but it's that, that really, really, really helped. Um, I think also what would be cool is if they, uh, faculty at university would show kind of examples of syllabi, how you'd run courses, um, but for all of the programs and all of the courses across that program. Um, I remember reading some, pro, uh, some research that had talked about the different like types of courses that universities offer for PEAT students. Um, and just showing what that can look like, the structure. I think somebody spoke earlier about the structure of a class and how to organize it. Um, being smart, like uh, Corey, I, I feel you with the advising and then um, trying to balance everything, just showing what that all looks like and planning effectively for like when to give assessments um, and how to assess effectively so that you're not wasting all of your time. Um, but I, just involving, I think, is the, is the main way to show us what it's going to be like in the real world and I, for me the i guess the i guess the luxury i had that i was able to have autonomy to just explore right i sat under some work with some people that were really great in their field but some things don't work for everyone right everybody doesn't have the same context everybody's not going to be received the, the same way so sometimes that guided practice though it may be good at times but for me I felt like I thrived better when I was given opportunities to just explore and use my faculty advisor as, hey, I'm doing this. What do you think? Mm, I wouldn't do that because of X, Y, and Z or continue to do that. And for, so I think a lot of programs, please excuse me, a lot of programs I would suggest of, you know, adopt a model or the idea of autonomy support and allow students to explore, but provide them that structure um, and be there when for questions. Um, and I think Dr. Hasty did a, a great job uh, with myself and other doc students with just giving us just free reign just to go out there and make mistakes. You make the mistake, we'll correct it. But, you know, we only bring in students or the mindset was we only bring in students that we know can be in these positions of ambiguity and work by themselves or self-starters. And so exploration, I would say, is probably another facet that would be helpful as well. Um, another thing I wanted to share is, uh, uh, I remember when I was uh, shadowing a methods course and with uh, Jamie, and so I gave feedback 
uh, on students, uh, their lesson plans. And then uh, Jamie gave me feedback. Uh, the feedback I give on students' lessons, lesson plans. So that's, so it's kind of like a step by uh, step, step by step uh, to teach me how to give feedback to undergraduate students on their lesson plans. So uh, something like that, like we sometimes, sometimes like uh, especially at the beginning of the uh, uh, doctoral studies, they're like, oh, what kind of feedback, general, specific, okay, well done, nice job, like something like that. But it's nice to have people um, tell me like uh, what kind of feedback I can give and to help students uh, and improve students' learning. All right, thank you to everyone who responded um, to that first section on high quality teaching. Um, just to stay on our, our time and our schedule, um, we're gonna switch gears and Chad's gonna leave it, lead a few questions on the area of knowledge generation. So Chad, I'll pass it over to you. Thanks, Jen. Thanks panelists for uh, giving us such good feedback about your teaching experiences. It sounds like there's some good stuff going on out there related to teaching. Um, we're gonna pivot a little bit here towards to the second pillar of our, our job as faculty, uh, the research pillar. And, and as we know, one of the main purposes of PhD training is for students, for us to develop the capacity to generate new. And we hope useful knowledge in the field as independent, but increasingly collaborative or interdisciplinary scholars. Um, obviously, that involves expanding our content knowledge, but also developing deep philosophical, theoretical, methodological knowledge, refining our problem-setting skills, and acquiring the problem-solving skills or research skills to tackle them. Uh, as many of us on this call well know, that's a little different from teaching physical education to elementary students or high school students. Being a researcher is, is very different. Um, and many of our doctoral students are former practitioners coming out of teaching roles uh, into research-based programs who may not possess or even understand or be knowledgeable of the complexity of the research process. Um, but even for students who are trained in research-oriented master's programs, um, as some of our panelists were, uh, transitioning into a doctoral program has, has its challenges. Um, so, you know, we're going to start with, with problem setting, I guess, or talk about some of the challenges um, before we get to, to the problem uh, solving piece. But so what are the challenges uh, some of you encountered uh, transitioning into being a doctoral student with possibly new or expanded research expectations? So I, I would say that, that um, absolutely kind of captures me in, in many ways. I very much teaching background, very little research training experiences prior to joining the PhD. And then I joined University of Alabama, which is a very aggressive research culture, which in many ways consumes you. Um, and so that was a challenge for me. I, I kind of felt, I, I felt whether it was the environment or whether it was self-imposed, the need to be productive, even though I didn't know what to be productive in and how to go about being productive in terms of um, doing the research. So that, that was certainly a challenge um, for me. And over the course of my journey there, I was learning and trying my hardest not to compare myself to people and other people's journeys because they're all on different routes, experiencing different things for different reasons. They're all in different positions. And, and therefore, it makes it unfair not to, to go about judging yourself and to have this idea about what you should be doing. Um, so I guess my response to that is try and, try and figure out who you are and who you want to be in this world of academia and then stick to that. And that's completely okay. Yeah, um, Jamie, I'd like to sort of chime in there. Um, hi, everybody. Chris from the University of Illinois. I, uh, I encountered so sort of the similar challenges as, as you, you did, Jamie, is sort of like finding my, my professional research identity or researcher identity. I, um, I arrived at the University of Illinois um, coming from a, a strong, I would say a strong uh, research focused master's program at the University of Wyoming. And I thought I knew what I was doing. Um, and I quickly uh, found out that I was uh, trying to, you know, drink water from a fire hose. I thought 
you know, I'm doing all this coursework. How am I going to juggle my teaching assistantship and my research assistantship? Um, and then also conduct my own research and, and develop my own line. And uh, I just think really that the most challenging thing for me was just kind of reflecting on who I was. I thought like going into a teaching, a pedagogy program, like I'm going to be teaching. I'm a teacher educator. I'm not a researcher. Um, that's just kind of on the side. Well, it, I guess it took me a few years to realize that that's just that's part of the job. Um, I know every university is different. Contexts are different. but that research element or component is is part of it. And you got to find ways to kind of, Corey mentioned this, like ebb and flow with the semester and learn how to balance your, your teaching responsibilities, your service responsibilities, and still publish and, and obtain grant money. So um, yeah, I just think just finding that management or that balance and then also um, accepting who you are and, and not being afraid to, or, or just stop comparing yourself and stop trying to like be as good as, you know, that full professor, associate professor with a hundred pubs uh, when you first start. So. If I could bounce off that, I totally agree with you. We were a, uh, a group of, I think, 11 grad students. So we all had different backgrounds and we, that was like the first year was just everybody in tears because secretly we were comparing ourselves to everybody else. And, you know, and, if PE teachers have the PE teachers, I have very little math experience, really not that great math. So stats to me, especially was so hard. I remember sitting in the seminar class first year and reading a paper like seven times the first time, just to like see what the writing style. Right. And then I would define all the words and then I would try to get the content and the background and the understanding of the article itself. And I just remember it, that was so hard for me because you can't read a sentence if you don't know what seven of the words are in that sentence so that was really really tough but the cool part about that that was really helpful um was that uh it was a seminar class so we would go and we talk about it and being like i i don't mind i know what i don't know and i don't mind telling people that i don't know things um but i feel like if you're not okay with that then you're gonna have you're gonna struggle um, but I, you know, I just remember sitting there and being like, I listen, I have no idea what this means. Somebody please help me, you know, and we would talk through it. So that was, um, awesome, but this definitely the stats and reading research writing style. That was, that was really tough for me coming, you know, off the bat. So for me, come, I came into my PhD, uh, with a few publications. I, uh, was fortunate to work with a new faculty member, my first year as a master's student. And so I worked on a grant with her. So I got a chance to see the research process um, more so as a data cruncher, um, but getting to my PhD program, um, and I think Chris mentioned it, learning how to pace, but also recognizing that um, you have to, I had to learn for myself. I had to learn how to control or be concerned with the things I can and cannot control. And once I realized like I can't control time, but time is my most precious natural resource. And so since I can't control it, I can't manage it, why not use the time that I do have wisely? So um, something that helped me a lot was just reading an article a week or just doing something and telling yourself, I'm gonna do this for five minutes only. And then you look up, it's 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and you've gotten through just maybe a paragraph, but that's more than you did the day before. And so for me, it was a kind of a slow process of really refining my skills, but also finding that identity. But I think the only way we can find that identity is we have to actually do that hard work and put ourselves in those uncomfortable situations and expose our kind of deep-seated insecurities. But once you kind of see that you can't control some of this stuff, it becomes a lot more liberating um, than when you first go into it. One thing I would like to share is uh, um, data analysis. So I focus on qualitative research method. And uh, in um, during the courses, I, I took uh, like case study qualitative research on those courses. And I got some uh, ideas, knowledge, but I did not have chance to practice how to analyze interview data, pictures, um, uh, journals, uh, artifacts, those things uh, in that uh, that uh, classes. So, uh, good good opportunity I have is 
Uh, I uh, work with uh, Jamie. So we did a, a study uh, together. It's a qualitative study. And so during that uh, project, and uh, uh, she taught me step-by-step step how to analyze open coding, Excel coding, uh, make codes, uh, make categories and themes. So uh, I, yeah, I appreciate um, taking those uh, methods, research methods courses, but it will be nice if we have opportunity to practice how to analyze quality, qualitative data. So that's, uh, um, that's my experience. I'm I, loving these. I'm loving these stories in the chat. By the way, feel free to share your like silly. I was first a doc student. This is what I thought in the chat. These are great, Donald. Thanks for sharing that Don Hellison quote there. That's that's incredible. Sorry, Mason. Go ahead. Uh yeah. So uh, I just like to share my uh, experience at Georgia State. Is that I also had a lack of knowledge about statistics, and I'm more about quantitative statistics person. So after I graduated my master program, I was able to understand what the correlation means, what the p-value means, and that's all I knew. And then it's a kind of need I needed to pursue during a doctoral program is that we have a comp exam option. One is traditional, and the other option is writing two paper. First is review paper, and another paper is data-driven paper. So uh, no matter I like it or uh, like it or not, I had to be uh, familiar and equipped with the knowledge about quantitative knowledge if, in order to conduct my research. So I took my time because my extra like course load to like meta-analysis and structural equation modeling. But what I believe is that if you are not a quantitative person or I don't know about the qualitative area, but if you take the required quantitative statistics course, Georgia State requires, uh, I believe, is a two or three quantitative and qualitative courses, then you will be enough to understand uh, many of the articles. And if you can't, then you can Google it because Google knows everything. You know. Um, uh, one more thing, I think uh, another challenge that uh, I don't know if it directly relates to like my, the research expectations, but something that I had a challenge with and it's I guess it's unrelated um, kind of like my own like beliefs and who I am but I I struggled going to my advisor with questions because I thought like this is my PhD I need to be learning this uh PhD students you know as we get into become faculty we should have we should have the, these skills this knowledge so I better learn this on my own or at least do my best to try to figure it out before I go to Amy or Kevin or, or Kim Graber. And um, it's probably because of who I am being like a sports person. I'm a, a competitive person. I don't like being wrong. I always like to win. It, it's, it was tough for me to like be told or get a paper back and like it just be completely read. Like nothing, not one sentence was right. Thankfully, Mark Byra showed me that early on in my undergrad that my writing sucked, but it still was hard for me to like accept rejection and be willing to uh, go into Amy's office and be like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, please tell me like what I'm doing. So um, that was tough. Been there, brother. Been there walking into that office with Amy. But these are I mean, this is this is incredible, you know, experiences to hear about because look where everybody is now. We all made it. We all, you know, did it. And, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is it's like understanding the process and maybe how that could help or a little bit more transparency in terms of, you know, us as faculty already in the field, how that could be helpful to people. It's like, hey, listen, this is kind of the step by step, because like many of you, I, li I literally would not have been able to even apply for a PhD program if my wife hadn't been a fellowship in master's program and had already basically done that. Like these people are talking about, you know, Steve Silverman, not knowing who he was, you know, Risto and all that. It's like, I wouldn't have even been able to apply if it wasn't for, uh, you know, somebody, my wife who who had been through it. So, you know, some transparency related to this type of stuff and, and process um, might be useful as well. How many people considered a PhD and think they couldn't do it? I mean, probably a lot of us. Guess what? We did it. And how many more people don't do it? Um, who would be quality scholars. So it's just helpful to hear and, and hope you people listen to this and can relate to it. But what we saw 
or what I heard sprinkled in there are, are little things that, that were support mechanisms um, that helped you get through it, that help you sort of overcome, all of us overcome sort of our, our insecurities or our competitive nature. Um, so let's talk about that. What, what did you find really supportive, you know, in relation to the research um, piece of your training um, to kind of get you through that, get you into to some writing, get you into some analysis um, during your training there? Um, I would say for me, uh, two things. One, um, we as doc students were kind of not required, but we were encouraged uh, to work collaboratively. And we had a, a lab space where all the doc students um, in pedagogy kind of set. And so we all kind of worked there. Um, and we had this whiteboard of tasks that we had to do. And we could only write on there, but we couldn't scratch it off. So we had the only our advisor could scratch it off and um, we had to put a due date beside it. And so for a lot of us, that kind of kept us going, kind of kept a community of scholars kind of staying engaged with each other, asking questions. And a lot of the work, especially that Corey and I do now, our birth out of that office of just having conversations about, hey, I read this article, what do you think? And he's like, well, why don't you think about this? And these small little cafe conversations kind of evolved and morphed, but they wouldn't have evolved and morphed if we weren't encouraged to be collaborative or just working with each other and realizing that we're not competitors here, we're actually here to work with each other. And good research has to be collaborative and being, taught that early and seeing someone like a Peter Hasty working with a lot of other scholars and him openly talking about that and then him modeling that for us um, and kind of refereeing us when we get in our junior or baby academic squirrels and but really having that space to be scholars before we were actually identified as scholars was very helpful um, for me early on to kind of stay afloat and get that momentum I needed to be where I am now. Corey, I like what you said, because again, like, you know, my program, there was a pretty lot of us. And as we all were in the beginning, you know, we were all kind of like judging um, or comparing ourselves to others. Right. Um, but I love that you said that they they showed you like the collaborative nature of research. And so that really took like a load off because you realized you don't need to be good at everything. Like, that's not what this is for. We're getting a Ph.D. to specialize in a certain area. And so let's all use our strengths together. Um, in order to do the research. So I, I, I love that. And I think that was actually so helpful for us too. Once we realized that we're not competing against each other, let's work together. It was so much easier. Um, one of the things that I found so beneficial, uh, again, I, math is really not my forte and I was um, quantitative as well. So we took that general uh, stats class in, you know, as part of our required coursework. And I think there was two levels. Um, really helped. I had to do so much extra work on my own though, just to get through, um, which was fine. And I have a nature where I don't mind asking a lot of questions and I don't mind letting people know that I don't know certain things. So I was the annoying person in the back of the class that was like, hang on, can you explain that? Um, but it really helped me. And um, so that was one thing that was so helpful. But another thing was we took, um, after taking that stats class, uh, that we had in our freshman, sophomore, for freshman, sophomore, our like first or second year, we would then do uh, a peak specific stat class. And that was so helpful because now we were understanding numbers and things that we understood. It was relative to our nature and our interests and things like that. Um, and the cool part, and I don't know if this was ever done on purpose or if we were actually writing parts of other people's research that got published eventually, but we would take that numbers, the, all those numbers, that number crunching, and we would actually have to write up the data analysis part of like a paper or um, a proposal. And so to turn over just the stats, but then also to be able to write it up and explain what that means, so helpful. That was really impactful. I should probably thank Dr. Brian for that. <laughs> I wasn't at the time, but I should now. I want to- yeah. Sorry, you can go. Go ahead, go ahead. I think um, the good thing is that the nature of higher ed, especially in the US, we're working with faculty which have a requirement of some sort to do research in varying types of ways. So I think an affordance is that we actually are in some way connected to people that do engage with research. But I also think that 
we don't have to just engage with people in pedagogy. We can meet, we can have conversations, go in and, and look to connect with people outside of this space. Um, be that through you take a class as part of your foundation or a research class and you appreciate someone's views on things or their ideas and you go and have a conversation and you go and ask them maybe is there space for, for you to engage or even if it's not just to engage research, would they mind mentoring you or advising you in some way? Um, that doesn't necessarily has to lead to something, but if they're contributing to your understanding of research and what it means to be a scholar, then that's helpful because I think we don't need to close ourselves off um, to work with pedagogy people only. Um, and oftentimes I think faculty is so pressured to do research, grant writing and manage their teaching and service responsibilities that they might not be searching for people to engage with from a research perspective. Um, so I guess put yourself out there make those connections. Um, don't be scared to contact people. Uh, I think professors' jobs are to respond to students, so. Yeah, and, and to kind of piggyback off that, Jamie, uh, Amy was excellent at, at including me in uh, like studies or research projects that I might ne not necessarily have the expertise or, or ability to like really be an integral part of their, their team or anything, but she essentially was like full and associate and assistant professors, like at, depending on at their level, they're gatekeepers in a way for the doc students. And uh, as a doctoral faculty member in charge of doctoral education, you need to be the one to open those gates for those doc, doc students and, and uh, make sure that they're able to, uh, you know, forge those collaborations with people that are uh, outside of pedagogy or, or uh, akin to pedagogy. So that's that was something that was just incredibly important in, in my um, preparation during doctoral training. That's great stuff. Thanks everybody for for sharing your thoughts on research supports and challenges. I think you know we we understand the value of community, especially as doc students uh, finding a quality cohort asking questions, finding opportunities. You're only a doc student once, or most of us are. Um, there's always opportunities to go into the different departments or different faculties and, and ask questions of, of people you might not be around after you leave. So um, it's great to hear what curiosity has, how that has helped you, how you've relied on your friends and so forth uh, to kind of get, get you through your experience. Uh, we're going to move on here and, and talk about the third pillar of faculty responsibility and stewardship, um, the service piece. So Dr. Richards, Kevin, Kevin's going to lead us in that discussion. Dr. Richards, I didn't know we were so formal, Chad. Um, so uh, uh, yes, uh, I, I, I was asked to kind of lead the conversation about the service piece and uh, service kind of rounds out the faculty role um, along with teaching uh, and research. Um, it, it's a, it's a, an important part of, of what we do uh, and it's multifaceted. Service occurs locally within our institutions as we serve on department uh, committees um, all the way up through university or college level committees. Um, it, it shows up in the work we do in the communities around our institutions as we try to make those better places and, and break down conceptualizations of universities as ivory towers. Uh, and it, it relates to uh, professional engagement that we do with organizations um, uh, such as SHAPE and uh, AERA within the U.S. and in internationally as well. Um, and so just to kind of um, get uh, the ball rolling with this, uh, the, the first question I'll throw out for the panelists are what are some of the ways uh, that we can prepare doctoral students to work towards becoming disciplinary stewards, serving the profession through organizational involvement? I would say just exposure um, to going to the national conferences and starting to get yourself in that network, right? A lot of you all and a lot of us here, I mean, I know you personally, but I've definitely seen your face at SHAPE, at NACI, at ASIP, and I met, I've seen a lot of your faces as a graduate student. And so I think for me, or just in general, you have to get involved in the discipline. You have to see and start your small little, you know, um, kind of your little network of sort of sort so that the discipline, so you have these connections within the discipline, as opposed to getting the job and saying, now I'm going to be a steward of the discipline. Well, you haven't been an apprentice. You haven't kind of watched the knights in battle. Um, so it's going to be really tough to say I'm going to be a steward of something that I haven't really spent time around. And um, so I think the best way is just exposure at the national level, at the international level, 
um, and start reading and reading what people are doing, reading people's CVs when you have a second so that you can understand the connections of, you know, people's bloodline through the discipline so that you understand where you fit in the greater scheme of things um, so that you can really see that you do play a significant part in keeping the profession and keeping the discipline alive and well. Uh, I can, I can talk next. So I think it'll be quite natural to be exposed to the organizations that your advisor is currently. So Shave America, we all know that uh, organization. So I'm not going to talk about that one, but like there are several organizations or conferences my advisor commonly go on a yearly basis. So probably they have like kind of role as a student representative or social media manager or website manager. So I was lucky to be a website major, which is a four year role. So I'm still working as a website major I was a student. So those kind of involvement in organization that your advisor is currently involved in will be a first place that you can get involved in. And then if you find another organization that looks you know, more interesting to you or it seems like more inclined to your uh, interest in research or teaching, then that'll be the next uh, step for you to reach out to the organization and see what kind of like involvement you can get in that organization. So overall, I think uh, beginning with your advisor will be the best place for you to initiate your experience in service in organizations. Any other perspectives on that first question? Okay, so then why don't we transition? Um, uh, how can we prepare doctoral students for institutional service responsibilities in faculty work? I'd like to chime in on that one, um, if I can. This is Jenna. Um, I, at University of South Carolina, we were almost taught, uh, we were almost treated like faculty. Um, so we had like annual reviews and um, you know, we had to do all the, I don't want to say all the same things as a faculty member, but that really did help to prepare, um, you know, me for the, the actual field. But um, I think that uh, having a requiring us, they, they required us to be on committees as well. And then I took a report back and to discuss that stuff with our peers, just the same as you would in a faculty meeting. Um, so that was definitely really helpful to show us like what that meant in terms of time and how much time you're putting in, but then also to explore the different levels of service that there are, um, committee work at the university um, and things like that. And then in addition to that, through the research that we were able to complete with our you know, advisors or other faculty members, we then got to also see how collaborations were created, which for me was really something brand new and it's still something I'm exploring, but like, you know, you're interested in doing this type of service or you know, not even not a committee, actually, I'm kind of trying to figure out how to create a committee right now. But, um, you know, being involved in that process of making that communication, setting up all the logistics, that's really important, because that's how we're going to be using that. Um, so, sh you know, shadowing being involved in that process was really helpful and took a lot of the fear out of it for me. Yeah, same, same at the University of Illinois. We were, we're, we're treated like faculty um, right from the get. We're asked to serve on hiring committees, educational policy committees. Um, quite frankly, I, 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 would be, I would attend those committees and I, half the time I didn't know what they were talking about. But um, just having that opportunity and then finally towards the end of my doctoral degree or doctoral program, I started, you know, filling in the pieces, figuring out like, well, first of all, there are quite a few service responsibilities that I was unaware of when I first started. And then second, like, how are you managing those and how can you use those to your advantage? I know some, um, some faculty um, have like this community, community based participatory research um, style of, of conducting research. And that's how some, how they fill some of their community based service responsibilities, but then how they uniquely tie that in with, with getting, um, reductions in those institutional service responsibilities. But it's that exposure, just letting them have a role and not just like maybe at the very beginning, let them just sit in the corner, kind of be a fly on the wall. But then as they progress through their program, giving them like a leadership responsibility um, or, or, or whatever it may be. So I think also what could be helpful is aligning experiences and uh, with the students' um, desired kind of 
career and professional goals, right? So when I first got to Auburn, one of the first conversations I had with my advisor was, where do you see this going? Where do you see your, your program going? And so, you know, I expressed, you know, some interest in some things. And each year or each semester, I would get a new opportunity that was gradually aligned with those things so that I could start making the decision of, do I want to be this type of faculty member who's engaged in student affairs and student development work? Or do I want to be a faculty member who's concerned with the academic fears uh, of the side of the house, but also just kind of being in the background and just watching, but also really being helped to define and streamline what is it that I want out of this program or out of the program, but out of the profession, because you can only be a researcher and a teacher for so long and you have to think about the end of the career as well. So what happens next? And so having that mindset early kind of helped me prep for, you know, not volunteering for every committee, right? I only volunteer for committees that aligned with things that I saw myself doing uh, and things that I wanted to do in the future. And there's some things I missed out on, but I'm glad I missed out on them because now as a faculty member, I have that confidence to say, no, I don't want to do that. Or yes, I'll definitely do that because this aligns as opposed to being a faculty member that has like a, a a diverse array of things on their CV that really don't make any, can make impact, but you want to make your service as impactful as possible and your scholarship and your teaching as streamlined as possible. And that's a tough thing to do on the back end. But if you start off like that, it becomes a lot easier to kind of get a niche in the field or get a niche or an idea of what you're trying to do in the profession. Thanks, Corey. Um, uh, any other perspectives on that uh, on that second question related to preparation for institutional service? I, I guess I want, I want to say one more thing is uh, just my involvement in the service opportunities really, and I think Emily mentioned this kind of in the chat, but like gave me an opportunity to practice like my inter interpersonal and my relationship building skills with faculty who might not necessarily value what I do and how I'm going to gain their trust, gain their respect, and and how like other faculty are managing these relationships. And, and often it's the only times they're meeting other, apart from faculty member meetings are during these like service responsibility meetings or committees. And um, just giving your doctoral students the opportunities to actually practice building relationships with uh, department colleagues or graduate level colleagues is was uh imperative for me so thanks chris <clears throat> um so why don't we use that as an opportunity to transition to the the third and uh, the third question maybe not the final but the third question uh in what ways can doctoral programs improve relative to parent preparing future faculty for the service obligations of our work um, this goes based off, I, I don't, I think it might've been Corey who was um, talking about this, but our university now that I'm teaching at has that teacher scholar model and it's, they are always talking about how to align your research with your teaching and your service and have it all aligned so that, you know, you're kind of keeping your life a little bit easier, but then also involving yourself in things that, um, will be beneficial for you. And I think that that is, uh, that's really important because typically, you know, when people think service and committee work and it's like, oh man, I have to join this, I have to do this. But knowing um, the different types of committee work or service work that could be done um, and then being able to, like you said, align it to your interests and what you want to do and how you want to be impactful, um, I think that'd be really helpful. But to see that kind of service standpoint from a, a less of a negative side maybe to you know something that we have to do as opposed to like changing it to something that can actually benefit us as well you know um but that might be a nice nice way <laughs> thanks uh, other thoughts just one of the uh it's nice to have different levels of services so like in the uh could be the state level or community level or national level or international level or uh, in the department or the program. So um, just get uh, those like different types of levels of service experiences. So that's helpful. Actually, to go off of that ping, I totally agree. Um, understanding, I think it would have been really helpful for me, even now I'm doing the same as a new faculty, is understanding 
almost like the hierarchy of higher ed and like you know you have to do service at all these different levels and then you're like wait who's that for and in what college and how does this matter um and so i think that like having almost a discussion with doc students like upfront in terms of what is service what qualifies as service at least at this university um what is a committee how do you participate whatever but then also like you know describing the different levels and what's available at the different levels um i think that would have been really helpful and nice upfront um as a doc student but then even even in my uh, my first year that would be a nice thing to to have had you know to understand the different levels in the hierarchy thanks uh, i i tori i saw that you were trying to unmute yeah yep i get zoom anxiety so whenever i unmute i immediately panic but um, I'm so sorry for the delay. I was really excited about this conversation. Um, for this last topic, I'll chime in. I'll just say, being very explicit, I think that's kind of reiterating the point about what service is and what it looks like. That's really helpful and kind of getting to observe from the outside because as a graduate student, you really can't get as involved um, in every committee, but being able to understand what it consists of. So like, for example, if my advisor is serving um, on faculty senate, explicitly saying, you know, what is faculty senate? What's my role with faculty senate? How might someone who's just entering into that setting, you know, perform in that setting versus a senior person in that setting? Because it's all very different and it's difficult in terms of the politics of a university environment and it's hard to learn that. So it's nice to have that open conversation with your advisor and see what they're experiencing. So like, for example, Kevin is my advisor when I was going through my doc program, I was very open about all the things that he was doing. And then also setting up situations for service for your students. So um, if it's not you know, something I can take part in, potentially inviting me to observe or um, inviting me to take part in other service like community service or engaging with people in other departments, it's just going, making it a plan, much like you are with your research and teaching, planning for it and making it a point to make it happen as opposed to just hoping it happens along the way. So um, with the with the last couple of minutes that, that we have, uh, Chad threw a question into chat and he had actually texted it to me on the side as well. And I think that um, it, it's a really, uh, really good perspective, a good a good thing to get out there now, um, asking about what what Chad referred to as decentralized service opportunities or or creating your own service, um, things like educational podcasts, social media, um, professional YouTube or TikTok, Pete Collaborative, what, what we're doing in the Pete Collaborative, the grad student forum stuff, that this kind of nuanced uh, a service that 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 might be a little bit non traditional in an academic sense. Um, do do any of the panelists have thoughts on that? Chad, Chad, do you want to speak to that at all? Well, I'm sort of understanding, you know, probably the challenge with this type of quote unquote decentralized or more digital oriented uh, service is that it's probably not counted the same. I don't know, Risto, can you maybe talk a little bit about how you've, not to put you on the spot here, but like how you've sort of framed your podcast or or anybody on the P Collaborative, how you framed your involvement with this or I know there's people on this call with pretty robust professional social media presence. Have you even considered that as service or is it just sort of, you know, something that's fun or something you do for your undergrad program? But as we all know, this stuff takes a lot of time and it's also really valuable to our students or to our field or to, you know, even on a bigger perspective. So that's kind of where I was coming from that is like, well, a lot of this new stuff takes a lot of effort, maybe more so than the committee work that we do in our university. Um, perhaps we need to start thinking about that as, as official service um, to the profession. Yeah, Chad, and at, uh, at Mason, I've been advised uh, when I started at untenured assistant professor, I was advised to put that into my service uh, in my letter and write it into my research statement, write it into my teaching statement, um, so they were really uh, pro having that. Um, and I think for me, it, it has been really good networking. It does take a lot of time putting out an episode every single week is three, four hours of my week putting it out. But I've kind of learned to streamline it a lot more with having a great doctoral student in ALBA that helps me out and produces that. And um, now that I've realized that I can ask people like Kevin, who's been doing a lot of that going behind the research stuff that has been helpful, um, having people like Emily Jones guest host. And so 
it's gotten easier, but they've definitely told me to put that into service. I never mentioned anything about social media, but the way like the extra stuff that I do on ResearchGate and that stuff definitely, um, definitely is in there. I saw Jenna's hand up. Did you uh, have something to say, Jenna? Uh, well, I got kicked out of the meeting on accident and I, um, I just, I wanted you to rephrase your question or say it again, if you could, cause I missed it. I'm sorry. Well, sure. So thinking about like uh, some of the, uh, you know, what Chad referred to as decentralized service opportunities, things like starting a podcast or, or, or engaging in, um, in social media, um, running something like the Pete collaborative or, or a graduate, graduate student forum that, that, uh, or other, I think shape America does, um, you know, what are the, what are the, uh, the place of those in kind of our professional service? Okay. Yeah. Thanks for, Thanks for that. I have to. I have to think about it. <laughs> no worries. Um, so, so I think uh, I, I think this is probably. Uh, oh, thank you, Bob. So grad student forum is decentralized. I misspoke on that. Um, uh, so this might be a good time to kind of transition, and, and I'm going to turn it over to Chad here in just a second um, uh, to to, uh, to bring us to closure. Uh, he's shaking his head, but that's what my notes say. Uh, so sorry. <laughs> um, but but just I guess the last word that I wanted to have was was something that I forgot to say at the beginning. Um, as as we were originally putting this together, we were thinking what what is the per what is the broad purpose of a session like this. So, so many of us um, might not work uh, at institutions that do doctoral education. So why does this have relevance to us? Why is doctoral education important? And um, you know, you're thinking about doctoral education as the process of developing and uh, preparing people for disciplinary stewardship. Um, you know, people that come through doctoral programs are, are the folks that get hired into faculty positions. Uh, and so their their readiness to make that transition uh, in a lot of ways depends upon how they were trained and how they were prepared through a doctoral program. So even if we're not doing doctoral education at our various institutions, I would contend that we all have a vested interest uh, in, in effective doctoral education um, because it, it at the end of the day impacts all of us when it comes to hiring. Yeah, definitely. That's a good you know, that's a good good way to wrap this up. I, you know, I think this, this was an unbelievable conversation. You know, we just appreciate you all sharing your experiences. Appreciate um, all the participants on that call for sort of hearing this. We all have, you know, stories from our doctoral training um, that we could share. And, and it's, it's helpful to hear that. It's helpful uh, to know ways that we can support each other moving forward at conferences or in other service opportunities um, and continue to sort of influence the positive future of our field. So thanks to all the panelists for sharing those, those great stories. Thanks for everybody's involvement in the chat. This is one of the best chats we've had uh, in a while. Just as a note, there were several job postings um, that people uh, advertise. We encourage you to do that at the end here. So be sure to scroll through there um, just to kind of see what's going on in the broader field beyond our conversation here. Um, I think somebody put in something about a Shape America event as well. So um, be sure to scroll through that. Um, but with that, thanks again for participation. Uh, we'll end the call here and, and we generally stay for, you know, 15 minutes after for anybody that wants to sort of have some informal conversations. We'll see you all in February for the next P Collaborative. So keep an eye on your inboxes, keep an eye on social media, and we'll run it back in what, what year is it? 2023. <laughs> see you guys. Thank you.